0: Historical Book of Chronicles, First Chronicles, uh, Chapter 15. And you'll remember that in our recent study of getting to grips with the Scriptures, we saw that this was probably one of the last books of Scripture to be written, and it was written after the exile, and it was written with the purpose of trying to help the people to learn from their sins of the past, and also to hold to the strengths of the past. And so we want to read this morning, uh, we're reading first of all three verses from First Chronicles 15, page 418 and 419, and then we're reading, reading extensively in First Chronicles 16. First of all, First Chronicles 15 and verse 1. David is now king, he's conquered Jerusalem, Jerusalem has been a pagan city, a pagan place of worship and David is now making it the city of the Lord, the city of the great king uh, as uh, we will be singing with the boys and girls uh, later in our service and it's made the city of the great king by the ark of the Lord, that's the presence of the king being brought into the city. Let's read then. After David had constructed buildings for himself in the city of David, he prepared a place for the ark of God and pitched a tent for it. Then David said, No one but the Levites may carry the ark of God, because the Lord chose them to carry the ark of the Lord and to minister before him forever. David assembled all Israel in Jerusalem, bringing up the ark of the Lord to the place he had prepared for it. And then chapter 16 verse 1. They brought the ark of God and set it inside the tent of David, or sorry, inside the tent that David had pitched for it, and they presented burnt offerings. And fellowship offerings before God. After David had finished sacrificing the burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord. Then he gave a loaf of bread, a cake of dates, and a cake of raisins to each Israelite man and woman. He appointed some of the Levites to minister before the ark of the Lord. To make petition, to give thanks, and to praise the Lord, the God of Israel. Asaph was the chief, Zechariah second. then Jael, uh, Shimonamoth, uh, Jehel, Mattathiah, Eliab, Baniah, Obed Edom, and Jael. They were to play the lyres and harps. Asaph was to sound the cymbals, and Benaniah. And Jehaziel, the priests, were to blow the trumpets regularly before the ark of the covenant of God. That day David first committed to Asaph and his associates this psalm of thanks to the Lord. Give thanks to the Lord. Call on his name. Make known among the nations what he has done. Sing to him. Sing praise to him. Tell of all his wonderful acts. Glory in his holy name, let the heart of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Look to the Lord and his strength, seek his face always. Remember the wonders he has done, his miracles, and the judgment he pronounced. O descendants of Israel, his servant, O sons of Jacob, his chosen ones, he is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. He remembers his covenant forever. The word he commanded for um, a thousand generations. The covenant he made with Abraham. The oath he swore to Isaac. He confirmed it to Jacob as a decree. To Israel as an everlasting covenant. To you I will give the land of Canaan as the portion you will inherit. When they were but few in number, few indeed and strangers in it, they wandered from nation to nation, from one kingdom to another. He allowed no man to oppress them, for their sake he rebuked kings. Do not touch my anointed ones, do my prophets no harm. And now from verse 23, we have it recorded again in Psalm 96, and so I want us to pay particular attention To this portion. Sing to the Lord all the earth, proclaim his salvation day after day, declare his glory among the nations, his marvellous deeds among all peoples. For great is the Lord, and most worthy of praise. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the nations are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him, strength and joy in his dwelling place. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of nations. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due to his name. Bring an offering and come before him. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. The world is firmly established. It cannot be moved. Let the heavens rejoice. Let the earth be glad. Let them say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Let the sea resound and all that is in it. Let the fields be jubilant and everything in them. Then the trees of the forest will sing. They will sing for joy before the Lord. For he comes to judge the earth. And then that's the end of what would be Psalm 96, but we read to verse 36. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. Cry out, save us, O God our Saviour. Gather us and deliver us from the nations, that we may give thanks to your holy name, that we may glory in your praise. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Then all the people said, Amen, and praise the Lord. Amen. Coming to our studies in the Psalms, uh, these songs of Christ, these songs that Christ has given to his church, and these songs that reveal Christ to his church and to the world. We are presently in Book four of the Psalms. That's the Psalms numbered ninety to one hundred and six. And this morning we're turning in our Bibles to Psalm ninety six, page six hundred and two, in the church uh, or the Bible provided uh, by the Church. Now Psalms ninety six, ninety seven, ninety eight 99 uh, form a cluster of four psalms. They're like a cluster of diamonds in a ring. Each psalm is distinct and special, but each psalm complements the other uh, and enhances the other. When a girl wears a diamond ring, on her wedding finger, she declares to the whole world, "Look, I am engaged And this cluster of four psalms declares to the whole world, Look at the Lord, for He is king. look to the Lord, for He is king. I want us to notice the phrase The Lord reigns, or similar uh, phrase in these four Psalms. That's a phrase we've met already in Psalm 93 that Johnny preached on when he was with us. The Lord reigns. If you go to Psalm 99, it's the opening words. The Lord reigns. If you come back the ways to Psalm 98, verse 6, it stated the same truth in a slightly different way. Shout joyfully before the King, the Lord. And so again, it's the Lord reigns. Psalm 97, verse 1, the opening words, the Lord reigns. And now Psalm 96, verse 10, say among the nations, the Lord reigns. So this cluster of diamonds, uh, is saying to the world and saying to the church, the Lord reigns. I want us to. I want to remind you again of what I said a couple of weeks ago, uh, when I was preaching in Psalm ninety-five. The word Lord, L-O-R-D, is in capital letters. This is the covenant name of God. This is the name in the Old Testament that declares he shall save his people from their sins and in the New Testament this eternal Lord is Jesus of Nazareth the second person in the Trinity who took a human body to save his people and so the testimony of these Psalms is that the Lord Jesus is King. The Lord Jesus reigns in the earth. And today, in the next three morning services, we want to consider each of these Psalms in turn. Looking now at Psalm 96, and this morning we are confining ourselves to verses 1 to 6, and then this evening, 7 to 13. And there are two points that we want to note from these opening verses about uh, Christ the King uh, who reigns. First of all, hear, or it might be better put, obey the King's summons. Obey the King's summons. I think that's a better heading because you don't just hear the summons of a king and Turn away your ears and ignore it. When a king speaks, you obey. And so obey the king's summons, verses one to three. And there is in these opening three verses a twofold summons from Christ the King. In verses one and two A, we have a summons from the King to praise. And then in the second part of verse 2 and verse 3, we have a summons of the king to proclaim. So a twofold summons to praise and to proclaim. Let's think about each of those in turn. The summons to praise. Notice the verb sing, it occurs three times sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all earth, sing to the Lord, praise his name. It creates a crescendo of praise. An ever increasing volume of praise to him. And this verb sing is in the plural. And it is an imperative. In other words, it is the Lord's command Not to a single individual, but to a body of people. It is the Lord's command to us, to you and me, to all of us as we meet to worship today. Sing to the Lord. All of us are to join in singing praise. There is no conception in scripture uh, of the solo or the choir that sings on their own when it comes to worship it is united worship it is corporate worship and all of us are to join in singing praise whether we feel we have talent or not however poor you may think your singing is it glorifies Christ and it strengthens your own soul. And singing encourages one another. Isn't that why Paul says. Uh, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. As you teach and admonish one another. Singing psalms. Can't remember who it was that said. That the Lord uh, made the crow. As well as the nightingale. Uh, and uh, both uh, sing um, their own uh, song to the Lord, and we are to do that as well, whether we're a crow or a nightingale. Notice how this summons of King Jesus to praise extends beyond the church. I want us to look now at the phrase um, "to all the earth." This phrase occurs four times: And verse one, verse nine, verse eleven, and thirteen. To all the earth. Um, Sing to the Lord, verse 1. All the earth. Notice a similar phrase, among the nations. And it occurs twice in verse 3 and verse 10. Declare his glory among the nations, verse 3. And then we have another phrase. Which shows us the extent of this summons to praise. And it's the phrase, the peoples. The NIV sometimes translates it as nations. It occurs in verse 3, verse 5, verse 7, and uh, verse 10, and verse 13. Look at verse 3. His marvelous deeds among all peoples. And then notice a fourth phrase. That illustrates the extent of this summons. It's the phrase the world. And it occurs in verse 10. And it occurs in verse 13. Verse 10. The world is firmly established. And so the summons of King Jesus. To sing praise to his name. Yes it comes firstly to us the church. But then it extends to the earth it extends to the nations it extends to the peoples it extends to the world every last individual is summoned verse 2 to bless In the niv it is praise his name to bless his name to lift up his name to exalt it to make it's worth and its glory known the psalm as we have already seen from our Old Testament reading um, has its beginning uh, in the entry of the ark into Jerusalem First Chronicles chapter 16 it was used on that occasion as David um, oversaw the coming of the ark of the Lord the entry of the king into jerusalem not david the king but the lord the king and as the ark came in to jerusalem it announced his kingship over the jewish nation david is not the ultimate king he is the lord's anointed he is the under king under the lord But here now, as this psalm is used in the book of Psalms, it is a much wider uh, application. For now it anticipates not the reign of King Jesus over the Jewish nation, but over all nations of the earth. It anticipates that command that Christ would give To his disciples. All authority in heaven and earth. Has been given to me. Go and make disciples. Of all nations. But that raises a question. Doesn't it? How will it come to pass. That King Jesus. Will be praised. And worshipped. In all the earth. In all the world. How will that. Theory. Become practice. How will the peoples come to serve Christ the King? Well that brings us to the second half of the summons. In verses 2b and 3. The summons to proclaim. The summons to proclaim. Proclaim the good news of his salvation from day to day. This is how the nations will hear. This is how Christ will become the saviour of the world as his church, Old Testament and New Testament uh, proclaims the good news of his salvation. It's very striking actually that the Hebrew word proclaim in verse 2 was used of someone bringing a message from a king to his subjects and when the um, old testament was translated from hebrew into greek the verb that was used in greek for this hebrew word proclaim is the verb which gives us evangelize and so this is a call here in the old testament A call in the New Testament to evangelize. This is a summons to the church to local evangelism and to world evangelism, to be bearers of the good news of Christ's salvation to the world, to the ends of the earth. And again, this verb, proclaim or evangelize, it's in the plural. And it takes again the form of a command. And there is an intensity to the tense of this verb which means proclaim continually or evangelize continually. And that emphasis is continued and heightened by the words from day to day. Proclaim continually the good news of his salvation from day to day. And what is that saying to you and to me about our witness to Christ and our evangelism? It's not to be uh, something that we do now and again. It's not something that we reserve for an outreach week at the end of August or an outreach event that is for men or for women that we organise in our congregation. Our evangelism is not something that we do when someone asks us, tell us what is different about you. Yes, we do it in all of those times. But surely this verb proclaim continually and the words from day to day remind us that Christians, though saved by Christ, we are called to be full time missionaries. We are witnesses day by day. Now for most of us, uh, to be missionaries means proclaiming the good news of Christ where we are. In the school, in the factory, in the office. It means proclaiming it to the family, to friends, to neighbours, to work colleagues, to the neighbourhood, to those we live among. For some Christians, being a full-time missionary means leaving family. It means leaving their native land to take the good news of Christ the King to another nation. Verse 3 sums it up again, and it's the same intensive form of the verb. Declare continually his glory Among the nations. That's what our calling is. That's why the first question in the catechism is so simple but so profound. What is man's chief end? It is to glorify God. That's our calling from day to day. To bring glory, declare continually his glory among the nations. His wonders among all peoples. That's the king's summons to us this morning. To praise, to praise with this new song of salvation. This old song which speaks of his salvation in Christ. But it's new because every day his salvation is new to us. And we are to praise him. And we are to proclaim him. And we want to ask ourselves. Before we leave this point. This question. How am I doing. This morning. How are you. Doing this morning. In the light of Christ's Two fold. Summons. To you. Are you. Praising him. Continually. With the new song. Are you praising him continually. As one whom he has called. By his life and death. or Sorry one whom he has saved. By his life and death. For your sins. And are you proclaiming him. Day by day. I suspect that for many of us. There is an imbalance in our lives. And we find it much easier to praise the Lord than we do to proclaim Him to those around us. But we need to get this twofold summons and to obey it in our lives. We need to ask the Lord to help us to be more, um, um, full-hearted in our praise. And more fulsome in our proclamation of his name. That brings us then secondly to declare the king's supremacy. Obey the king's summons and now declare the king's supremacy. We come now to verses 4 through 6. And these verses answer the question why? Why? Why praise the Lord? Why proclaim the Lord to the earth, to the nations, to the peoples, to the world? Jonah asked that question in his own roundabout way when he was being sent by the Lord as the prophet to Assyria and to Nineveh. And they had their own gods and their own religion. Why should Jews in the Old Testament proclaim the Lord and call the nations to forsake their gods and serve the God of the Jews? And why should we as Christians in the New Testament proclaim the Lord to the nations and to our neighbours? And why should we urge people to leave Whatever gods they serve and worship. Whether they're the great world religions of Islam or Buddhism or whatever. Or whether it is the more down to earth things of material things that people worship. This is often an objection that is voiced against the Christian faith. Critics of evangelism and mission will say individuals have a right to their own opinion in matters of faith. And the nations have a right to their own gods, their tribal gods, their ancestral gods. How do we answer that? Well, the psalmist answers it. And the psalmist begs to differ from that kind of thinking. And we are to differ from that kind of thinking. Look at verse 4. For the Lord is great. And greatly to be praised. He lifts up again the Lord. And he holds him up. And he says here's why. The Lord is great. He is to be feared above all gods. Now, if the psalmist had stopped there at that point, he could have been understood as saying that there are many gods that can legitimately be worshipped and served and that the Lord is simply the greatest of the gods of the earth. But that's not what the psalmist is saying because the psalmist doesn't stop there And he doesn't leave himself open to that misunderstanding. Look at what he says. Verse 5. For the gods of the peoples are idols. The gods of the peoples are idols. Now there is a play on words here. Between um, God, the true God. And the gods. And it's a play that we can't really. Reproduce. In English. The the closest that I can come to. Is this. If you think of the Lord. He is everything. And it's like saying. These gods are. Nothing. Nothing. The word in the Hebrew. Literally means. The word for idol is. Nobody's nothings they're worthless the gods of the nations are non-entities they're the result of fallen human imagination and the great reality that is often overlooked in our world is this people will worship every last person that exists is a worshipper They worship someone or something. If it's not themselves, then it's what they have. Or it is some of the great religions of the world. Or it is the true and the living God. People are worshippers. And in our witness, we need to remind people of that. And challenge people if they say, I'm an atheist. I'm an agnostic. The reality is they're not. They do worship someone or something. The gods of the nations, the gods that people worship are nobodies. The result of fallen human imagination. To believe in them is like believing in fairies. No, it's worse. It's a million, million times worse. Because believing in fairies will not cause a person any spiritual harm or eternal loss. But believing in a God other than the Lord, trusting in money, trusting in oneself, trusting in pleasure, trusting in material things, trusting in Allah, trusting in Buddha will have devastating consequences for all who make that mistake. Psalm 96 is exclusivist. It allows for only one God. The Old Testament is exclusivist when it comes to other gods and other religions. And Jesus is equally exclusivist. And the New Testament is equally exclusivist when it comes to other gods and other religions. The Greek gods and the Roman gods. Paul again says the same thing. They are nothings. Jesus himself said no one comes to the Father except by me. John 14 verse 6. The apostles declared, There is no other name given under heaven among men by which we must be saved. No other name. One way to be saved. Why? Are the scriptures... Of the New Testament and the Old Testament exclusivist. When it comes to other gods and other religions. Why are we to allow for no other gods and no other religions. Except Christ and the Christian religion. Well the psalmist answers that question. By taking us back to basics. He says who made. In fact, he asks a question. Or answers a question. An imaginary question. Who made the world? Was it you? If it's not you. Why trust in yourself? You're not God. If it didn't make itself. Out of material things. Why trust in material things? The psalmist says, verse 5, but the Lord made the heavens. And the New Testament tells us that it is the Lord Jesus who made all things. The Father said, let there be. He gave the command and the Son is the one by whom all things are made and all things consist And so, if the Lord Jesus is the one who made the heavens, it is the kindest thing to do, to say to people, he is the only one who can save us. And it's not putting people down. It's bringing people from darkness into light. It's bringing people from despair into hope. Christ created all things, he made the heavens and the earth, he made the angels and he made humans, he made the birds and the beasts, but he did not make any gods. He didn't make any gods. He didn't give each nation a god for themselves. There are many things that are distinctive about each particular nation. But there's not to be a distinctiveness when it comes to who we worship. This God, three distinct persons, is one God. He is Father, Son and Holy Spirit. Verse 6, we're told then about this God This Lord Jesus, honor and majesty are before him, strength and beauty in his sanctuary. It's a description of the Lord in heaven. The Lord Jesus, before he came from heaven to earth, he had honor and majesty before him. He had strength and beauty in the sanctuary of heaven. Isn't that why Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he made himself a nothing, as it were. He took the form of a servant. He left the splendor. He left the honor, the majesty. And he clothed that honor and majesty that was part of his person in a human body. So that it couldn't um, uh, normally or, or quickly be seen. So this verse describes Christ in heaven. But it also describes Christ in his earthly body. Because when we go to John chapter 1 verse 14, what does John write? He writes about the word becoming flesh and the word dwelling among us and we beheld his glory. They did see glimpses of his glory. They did see in the earthly life of Jesus those men who were by him day and night. They saw honour and majesty. They saw strength and beauty that they didn't have, that Moses didn't have, that the prophets didn't have. And then surely this verse describes not only Christ and heaven and Christ in his human nature But it also describes Christ in a sanctuary, the church. This is what is to mark us. Honor and majesty, strength and beauty. That's what he looks for us. That's what he looks for in you, his sanctuary. That we are men and women who reflect him. Their old sinful nature is being dealt with by us. And his new nature is being formed in us. And his new nature is shining from us. So that people looking at us, they see us as different. They say there's a man, there's a woman I work with or I live beside. And there's an honour, there's a majesty about them. There is a strength and a beauty in them. That I don't see in the average person. And that's because you and I, who believe in Him, you and I, who are saved by Christ, we are His sanctuary. He indwells us by His Holy Spirit. And if we are not showing forth his honour and majesty. And if we are not reflecting his strength and beauty. There is something wrong in our profession of faith. Either we think we are saved and we are not saved. Or we are saved but we are not being sanctified. And we are not growing in holiness and likeness. And so by our very lives we declare the king's supremacy. And so this morning the Lord Jesus, the king he summons you to profess him And if you're not a Christian here this morning whatever age, maybe a boy or girl you have not yet trusted in Christ Then he summons you this morning, whether you're young, whether you're older, to repent and to believe. That means to profess him as your saviour. And then to live a life that praises him. And a life that proclaims him from day to day. That's our calling in this world. That's our calling with our children. That's our calling with our families. And you are to profess him and to proclaim him then to the exclusion of all other gods. That means not just that we say Islam is wrong and Buddhism is wrong and materialism is wrong. It means something very practical for you and me. To praise him and to proclaim him to the exclusion of all other gods. It means there is to be no other God among you. There is to be no other God within you. It was John Calvin who described uh, the human heart as a factory of idols. Your heart and my heart, it's a place where idols are made. That idol could be ourselves. That idol could be a spouse. That idol could be a job. That idol could be our prestige, our career, our home, our possessions, our family. It takes many, many forms. There are many idols. The human heart is a factory of idols. And you see, if there is no other God but the Lord God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, then it means we have got to get rid of the idols that are in our hearts. You shall have no other gods before me. That's instead of me. It also means alongside me or underneath me. He is the Lord God alone. Great and greatly to be praised. And all the gods of the peoples of the earth and the gods that we have in our hearts they're idols. And God will leave them and follow him and serve him and praise him and proclaim them alone. Amen. Let's bow our heads and let's pray. Lord God, we worship you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the great God and the great King, the one who is to be praised by us because of your great salvation the one who is to be proclaimed to the ends of the earth the one who is to be the only God in our lives the one who is to be the only God in the nations of the earth often Lord as Christians we can be very strong in asserting in the face of other world religions that they are nothing but idols and we can be very weak at recognizing that our own hearts are a factory of idols and so help us Lord God to deal with the idols the false gods that are in our hearts and help us to have Christ alone as supreme. We pray, Lord God, that honour and majesty, strength and beauty that are before him in heaven, that were his while he was on this earth in his human body, that they would now be ours as a sea of people, that we be marred by honour and majesty and strength and beauty. Sin is ugly. Christ is beautiful. Make us like Christ. Make us beautiful. Cause us to reflect on. In Jesus' name, amen.